0: Happy Monday, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Thinking Project Podcast. This is your boy Dalton. Make sure you're following the podcast on daltonkjensen.com, where you can stay up to date with everything sponsorship, uh, all the new ventures that we got going on. Uh, and also, you can check out the PodMunity. So, shout out to Dre Rocca, uh, Angel, and Justin at the other side of the Beehive, uh, the Young OGs, the Will Wonder podcast, the 27th Hour podcast. Uh, The Damage Plan MMA podcast. Uh, There's so many good things happening in Utah right now. And I I really want to get as much support as we can to everybody on the home team. So please do that. And without further ado, let me introduce Jesse Randall, who is the CEO of Sweater. Now, Sweater is the first venture capital firm for everyday investors. So until now, only a select few uh, have had access to the most exclusive asset class in the world. Venture Capital, uh, uh, excuse me, Jesse and his team over at Venture or excuse me, Sweater are changing that. So you can grab uh, all of their info and join the waitlist at sweaterventures.com. And we had an amazing interview. This interview was done live uh, over Streamyard. Um, we went live to LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. So if you want to catch any of the live interviews, make sure that you're following me on Facebook, YouTube, uh, and LinkedIn. Because it was absolutely fantastic. So uh, let's kick it off. Thank you so much to Jesse Randall for joining me. And I hope you guys enjoy as well. Welcome, everybody. This is Don Jensen, and you're tuning into The Thinking Project.
1: I got this shot this morning when when I was running. Freaking fantastic. Probably one of the best photos I've ever taken.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> That's great. <coughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, so is that, is that your hobby outside of this? I mean, you live in Colorado. What else do you like to do in Colorado?
1: Um, so we definitely got into skiing when we got here. So I, I've taught all my kids how to ski, which has been fun. And uh, let's see. I've done some mountain biking, a lot of running, road cycling. We try to get up and and do camping and hiking and stuff, but God, sometimes it's hard to get out despite how close we are. So we keep busy.
0: All right. The usual suspects. (laughs) Oh yeah, dude. I, I feel this Yeah. I feel the same way because, um, ever since we moved to Utah, it wasn't until the pandemic that we actually started, like my family and I actually started to, you know, like get out in the mountains and hike because like I'm from Iowa And there's not a whole lot to do outside in Iowa besides like, you know, farm and stuff. So, so we we definitely explored. That was one of the benefits for our family. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to get out, right? Um, We decided to live in a small town here. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a lot of fun. You know, kids, you don't have to worry about a lot of stuff that you have to in, in larger cities or big suburbs, you know, kids can just go do whatever. It's great. (laughs)
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate that we were able to put this together uh, in such a short time. Um, So I appreciate you. And so I guess to start, like, let me get like your background um, and I guess your story. So you're the owner of Sweater. You're the CEO and co-founder of Sweater right now, uh, which I thought was very interesting. So we're definitely going to have to talk a lot about that. But like, how did your journey in business start? Um, and where did your love of like entrepreneurship come from?
1: Yeah. Um, I'll give you the quick story on sweater. And, you know, for those that don't know what sweater is, let me tell you a little bit about sweater, just intro and then how I Mm -hmm. got to it. So sweater is, it's the first venture capital fund that anyone can, can contribute to. Um, so today, if you want to put money in a VC fund, you've got to write, like, a half a million dollar check. It's very out of reach, even for accredited investors. Uh, and so our objective was to break that down um, and, uh, and create something that anyone could get into. So, you know, put in $500 instead of 500,000 and, you know, create a, uh, the same opportunity for everyone to be able to make money and grow their wealth in the same way as the wealthiest people do. So we're <clears throat> delivering it as a mobile app. So it's, it's kind of like uh, Robinhood, mobile first kind of an experience. Uh, but mm-hmm. you're getting into private companies instead of public companies. Uh, and it's all fully managed. So you don't have to go and vet your own deals or try to decide if a company's any good. We do all that professionally. We invest alongside other VC funds in venture quality deals. So <clears throat> you know we're excited about it. It's um there's a lot of potential and it's it's a pretty sexy asset class that people haven't been able to get good access to. So that's the basics of of sweater. Um, we just launched a wait list and we'll be mm-hmm. Live, ready to take money from the public in early 2022. So, um the way we got there, though, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. I so I was previously uh, stationed, stationed like I was in the military. Used to live mm-hmm. in Phoenix, was there for a decade, and I I worked in the startup ecosystem there in a few different capacities. Worked for for some private companies individually, helped raise money and stuff. Worked for a VC accelerator that later actually raised their own VC fund, but there wasn't ever really. Uh, capital dedicated just to Arizona. Um, There's a couple of angel groups and there are a couple of VC funds there, but they don't tend to invest much in Arizona, especially at the seed stage. And I got kind of, I I finally just said, you know, I'm tired of waiting for someone else to do this. Why can't I be the one that makes the fund and actually start seeding deals here the way that, you know, like Kickstart started things about 12, 13 years ago in Utah, right? And started laying foundations for what Utah has become. So I I started this journey of creating a fund and a couple of months into exploratory conversations and getting oriented, hit me like a ton of bricks one day that I wasn't allowed to invest in my own fund because I wasn't accredited. And I was like, wait, 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 I'm the guy running the fund. How could I not invest in the fund that I am operating? And I was baffled and curious. So I decided to uh, dive into it and understand the why behind it instead of just knowing the rules, like the why behind the rules. Um, and as I dug in, you know, it's, it's some boring stuff with the 1940 Investment Act, the 1933 Securities Act that no one ever wants to read. And as I got oriented, <laughs> the underlying tone kind of made me upset because it basically says if you're not wealthy, then you're not smart enough to understand this stuff and we need to protect you from it. And I, that just set me off. I was like, that's, that's pretty ridiculous. Like, I get it. Maybe back in the 40s, even in the 70s, like access to information wasn't good. Like, you could get swindled. But today it's totally different. So much access to information, so much technology to allow us to do this. And I just said, there's got to be a better way. And that was three years ago. And so here we are.
0: Yeah. So how did, uh, I mean, how are you, because I've heard of a few other like people kind of trying to circumvent this uh, accredited investor. I think I'm with you, by the way, like, I think it's very dumb because we're, we're in the information age, or I mean, at least we're, we're close enough to where like, I can learn about this stuff. Like if you really wanted to learn about investing and venture capital, like you don't have to go to college, you don't have to um, hire expensive coaches or financial planners. Like you can learn the basics of it and and understand what's going on. And so, I mean, so, cause I've heard of a, a lot of other companies kind of like, you know, sidestepping this accredited investor stuff. So how are you guys planning on doing that? Or like, what what's kind of like the science behind all that?
1: <clears throat> yeah. So I'll tell you what I can um, okay, before deal. we launch. Right, I deal. mean, once we launch, then everybody yeah. will know how we're doing this. But first of all, we're not like taking advantage of a loophole. We're not, uh, okay. you know, often it's said, you know, getting around the law, you know, we're not doing anything okay. like that. Everything's super legit. Um, and we're actually using a fund structure that's been around for 40 years. It's just used in different okay. contexts. Um, so a little bit of history is helpful here and I'll try to keep it brief and not boring. <laughs> so the, um, this really goes back to the 1940 investment act. So the 1940 investment is like this big umbrella and it touches every financial instrument in the U S so any type of investment opportunity okay. is regulated by the 1940 investment act. Um, but underneath it, there's all these silos and these different, they call them exemption sets, and you know fund frameworks that are pre-approved by the SEC for specific purposes and with very specific parameters. So back in the 1940s, there weren't very many of these, but today there's a lot. They've been created over the course of time. Venture capital is one of them. So underneath this umbrella, you have this subset of venture capital. And it was really born out of the 60s and 70s, you know, when like HP and um, you know, Intel were kind of being born out of Silicon Valley. Those companies were initially funded just by wealthy individuals putting money in directly, kind of like angels, right? And after these things mm-hmm. started working, these guys looked around and said, Well, wouldn't it be great to pool our money and actually do this, you know, more formally? And when they went to do that, they found they had to deal with this 1940 investment act that has all these really onerous oversight requirements and everything. And they basically said, they went to the SEC and said, Hey, we're big boys, we can lose our own money. Why don't you let us create a fund structure with less oversight and look at all these great things we can do? And you know, pointing to Intel and HP and stuff, we can do more of this if you'll you know take the reins back a little bit. And so the SEC said, sure, that's fine. But in return, you have to be accredited or qualified investors to be inside your fund structure. And you can only have 100 people in your fund.
0: We are brought to you by Legal Inc. Estate Planning. Listen, you wouldn't dine and dash, so why would you leave your family in the hands of the courts and the government when you pass away? Most people think they don't have enough to start estate planning or that it's too expensive. Things like wills and a trust. While those are valid reasons, they're limiting beliefs, guys, to creating and keeping the wealth that you want to have. Listen, it's free to talk to Michael to learn more about what you can do today to protect your tomorrow and live your best life. Wills are necessary, especially if you have a home and kids. And a trust is the number one way to build and retain your wealth. So it's your life. It's your story. Make it a good one. Visit legallifeplan.com to schedule your first conversation with Michael and tell him that the Thinking Project sent you. It'll be the best decision you've ever made.
1: And those were the restrictions that created venture capital. And that's the way venture Mm -hmm. capital has been for the last 40 some odd years. So enter us looking at that and what everybody does is they look at that venture capital exemption set and they're like, there's gotta be a loophole in here somewhere that allows retail <laughs> investors to somehow get involved. And there's just not, you know, um, a lot of people are, uh, familiar with crowdfunding and crowdfunding mm-hmm. is a totally different, uh, different silo. It's got its own set of rules. Right. Um, and it allows individual people to invest directly in a company and there's very specific parameters, um, around how that happens. Um, So when we started attacking this, and one of those parameters is you cannot use crowdfunding to create a fund that is managed. It's against the rules. Mm -hmm. It's explicitly stated. You cannot do that. So they're basically bulletproof. So one of the questions we asked was, well, what if we don't try to work within those frameworks? Is there a different fund structure altogether somewhere else underneath this umbrella that already exists that allows us to take money from retail investors and invest it like a VC fund into private companies? But not actually be that same VC fund designation, which this all sounds terribly boring. But the the short answer is yes, there was. And it took us two and a half years of discussions with the SEC to identify a fund structure that they were comfortable with. Wow. And we're in the middle of finalizing all that right now. So um yeah, it's the fund structure's been around forever and not forever, but you know, for 40 years. And we're just applying it yeah. a little bit creatively.
0: That's great though. I mean, that's kind of what the 20, I mean, that's kind of what 2021 and going forward is all about is like helping people uh, who normally wouldn't be able to like get involved in this stuff because of whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. be able to get involved in this stuff. I mean, that's like, so I heard a statistic once um, cause I'm big in like the finance and accounting world and stuff like that. Um, and so I'm glad that you explained it and, and made it simple. Like that was one of, simplest. I wouldn't have been able to explain it like that. Um, but it's so interesting. Like I heard a statistic once that like, that's like how a lot of people get wealthy. Like, I mean, there's like traditional routes of like, you know, working and saving and all this stuff. But then there's like, like, what do you do when you invest and how can I have more control over my investments? And how can I just do this? Like kind of on my own, right? A lot of people want that like autonomy back. It seems like that's what you guys are going for.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, this whole GameStop situation, you know, and Robin (laughs) Hood thing happened back in February. Oh man, that created tailwinds like you wouldn't believe because it it brought to the forefront of everybody's minds. Like, wait a minute, there are two games being played. Right. And Mm -hmm. I can't be in that one. And, you know, part of the backlash from the wall street bets group and everything it was really, I mean, like, how about this? If all those folks in the wall street bets group, could have had the opportunity to put their money in those hedge funds that were shorting GameStop, I can almost guarantee that if they could actually access those funds, they probably wouldn't have behaved the way they did, but because they were (laughs) locked out of it and there was also perceived, you know, uh, bad intent, you know, so to speak by shorting these, these stocks and stuff, right. It upsets Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And when we talk about the wealth gap and, and all that stuff, that's ever getting bigger, right. It's kind of yeah, like, well, guys, yeah, look yeah. around, like look at all of these asset classes that the rest of us can't get into and they outperform everything else. Of course, the wealthy are gonna keep right. getting wealthier if for nothing else, just that. And so mm-hmm. why can't we have access to the same asset classes? You know, if we wanna solve this problem or at least slow it down, we need at least to be able to invest in the same assets. And so that, that's part of what we're breaking down. I mean, my prediction is mm-hmm. 10 years from now, we're not even gonna recognize the financial system, the investment opportunities that we're gonna have, um, and the the way the playing field is going to be way more level and open than it is today. And I'm not just talking about like crypto and more of the extreme ends of the financial fiat world, right? I'm mm-hmm. talking about all the traditional stuff that currently exists. It's all going to be open 10 years from mm-hmm. now. It's going to be a very different consumer experience.
0: I, I believe that. Well, and you're preaching to the choir on that one because there's no way it stays the same. I mean, after I think with the one cool thing about GameStop, I was following that stuff pretty close. Um, you know, with all the Wall Street, bets, I've been, a—I I was a part of that Reddit group. And I mean, I never get on Reddit, but like I was, when I was like getting on stuff and, and I would like follow them, but I followed that pretty closely and like the huge stuff and, and it can't be the same anymore. Like that was the one thing that showed us like, dude, this isn't fair. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so of course try to do something to, you know, figure this out and, or like, at least show you that like, we're going to disrupt this whole system. That's why yeah. I liked it. I, I thought it was very fun to Oh yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> no, man, and it I was mean, a major,
1: major flex by the retail family, right? Yeah. Against,
0: yeah,
1: like uh, against the big institutions. And <gasps> you know, we've got some pretty close friends that are very tied into the upper echelons of the finance world and Wall Street. And the last <laughs> yeah. six months have been like hell for those guys. I mean. They don't know what to do. Like they all look around, and they have these investment strategies that they've raised money around that everyone is afraid of betting <laughs> the way they've bet in the past because they don't know if they're about to get screwed. I just saw a stat yesterday that since uh, February, you know, January, February, when the whole Wall Street bets thing started, um, mm-hmm. that there, there's been twelve billion dollars in losses against you know in, in this whole hedge fund industry because of. Mm-hmm all the meme stocks and everything else that's going on and all the coordination on the retail side. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're flexing hard and it's not going away. I suspect that we may see some more regulation around this to help create less volatility in the market, because if it continues this way, you know, I mean, a lot I mean, people get hurt along the way, regular folks, you know, they, they yeah. get caught in the wrong part of the cycle and they, they do lose money. Right. And um, so I, I don't think that that, the SEC really loves that. And I, I do think that they're going to create mm-hmm. some different parameters. I don't know how without making everybody sure. really upset, but it's on the table. You, you got to know it's on the table. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I, yeah. And that's the kind of thing is like, that's, that's where it's hard for me. Like with a lot of this stuff is like how, how much is regulation is too much regulation, but I, I understand that we need some and you know, it's just mm-hmm. weird. That's a whole, probably a whole nother conversation by itself, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, yeah, but I mean, the long run, it's it's all trending in the right direction. It's trending for consumers. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's Sweater's so whole objective, right? I mean, like, we exist to open up an asset class that's been closed off since it was created. And fundamentally, mm-hmm. you know, um, bring more money around the table and create a seat at the VC table for everyday people. Um, and that's just like VCs and not take table scraps and things that are leftovers, but actually be in the middle of it and be leading deals and co-investing with other great VC funds and, um, you know, purchasing up secondaries and, and really creating a very, um, a, a, I mean, safe as relative, right. But a mm-hmm. well-diversified approach to being inside venture. And it's like, one of the things that's interesting about the way sweater is set up from an investment thesis perspective is it's kind of like a, like a cousin to a mutual fund in the way that it will operate in that mm-hmm. we'll, we can take money into it. It's evergreen. So we can take money into it forever. So a typical VC mm-hmm. fund um, raises a certain amount, right? They might go raise $100 million. And then they have right. that 100 million and they have it allocated to go and invest in, say, 30 companies. And so w- when they play inside that box and say, we've got to have 30 companies, these 30 companies mm-hmm. have to make the fund and so they're extraordinarily selective and they have to be able to defend themselves. You know, the, 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 VC itself, the GPs have to turn around and defend their position to their investors and the decisions that they made to put those specific companies in there. And there's this whole thing mm-hmm. called power laws, which basically says, um, it's kind of like the 80, 20 rule, right? 20% of the portfolio of those 30 companies is going to return the entire fund. Everything else is either going to be total losses or barely get your money back, you know, more or less. And so if they miss, out of those 30, and they only have 10% or 5% of those companies that are outsized, they may not get Mm -hmm. good returns. So in the way we're doing it, because it's evergreen and we can raise money forever, we're not constrained to only investing in 30 companies. We can invest in 300 or 3000 over time.
0: And so that creates a
1: very diversified approach that just doesn't exist in venture right now.
0: Yeah. Well, and that makes uh, a lot of sense and kind of really cool. That's actually a really cool way to do it because when you look at like, like tech is a big one in Utah, like when you're, when you're talking like up North or, you know, more central South with all these uh, tech companies and SaaS companies. And I just, yeah, I've always wondered like, you know um, how they, how they get their how they choose and stuff like that, because it's a very foreign world. Like if you're, you know, I mean, I I work in SAS and I've worked in tech and I've, and I've learned all this stuff, but experience it, experiencing it is really different. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's really cool that now you can have people, let people experience. So, uh, man, when this launches, I have a ton, I want to dive deeper because I know you, (laughs) I know, I know that you can't tell a whole lot, but it's really cool. That's a really cool way to do it.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I mean, we're excited. You know, it's, um, I wish I could talk more about it right now, but, you know, overall (laughs) it's just, you know, and we're not out. I mean, like to be clear too, like we're not out to like take down venture capital or like disrupt the industry. That's, that's not our purpose. Like, I mean, (laughs) traditional VCs are going to stay around, right? We're just one more player in the market and we bring some unique advantages to the table. Um, But like what we say is that venture capital hasn't reached its full potential yet, right? Has it outsized impact overall? On on the industry and on the world because of the way that companies grow and and have an impact on uh, in the long run, Um, but you know, like on a scale of one to ten, the way we see it is like, well, it's like a five or maybe a six out of ten, right? And what's (laughs) missing from our perspective is it's retail money and it's retail engagement in the process, you know. Mm -hmm. So like Mm -hmm. when you examine effectively the strategy of how companies are built today it's basically find a great team that has a great pain point and concept that they are solving, right. And a big market opportunity, Mm -hmm. give them a war chest of money to go out and conquer the world. Right. And then, you know, they sit in their bunkers and they go pew, pew, pew. And you know, they, they try to get customers and they're, they're attacking the whole world trying, you know, if they're focused, they'll be very narrow in that, but generally you're giving them a war chest and say, go to work um, and try to get the world to come to you, you know? And what we're saying is, well, what if we brought the world to the startup? I mean, we're going to have hundreds of thousands or even millions of investors. And so when we make an investment in a company, we have hundreds of thousands of people who are now part owners in that company, and they have a vested interest in helping to make it successful. So when it comes, especially to the earliest stages of actually helping a company uh, find success, we believe that we can reduce the risk associated with that and accelerate the amount of, you know, the the time to market and reduce how long it takes in order to find product market fit and actually establish yourself as a company. And, you know, so like we look at things like that and it's like, we could, there's a chance right at scale that you can fundamentally change the way that companies are built and taken to market. And we're excited about that. Right. I mean, that changes the fundamentals yeah. of the whole venture game. It, you know, if we can pull it off.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, that's just the coolest thing. And this is why I love interviewing business owners, especially like yourself, where you're like creating something new and starting something different is because you have this idea and it's, it's really going to help so many people. And when you're somebody who has all of these ideas or, you know, you want to start like growing your wealth, like maybe you're in a good place to really start putting your money somewhere, it can be kind of boring to go like 401k IRA and stuff like that, because you want to like invest in these companies. Like I love investing in small businesses. So with like self-directed IRAs or like, you know, just some other stuff, because that's the cool thing. Like seeing like small business and medium-sized businesses or like these tech companies who are changing the world, seeing those guys' visions and being able to help them. Like that's really cool in my mind. And it seems like that's what doing. So, I mean, aside from, you know, the companies that'll be in there, will will the consumer have a lot of options as to like where they can put it or is it kind of like go, you know, the it gets essentially it's to go.
1: Yeah, so it's um it's starting out fully managed. So, when people make a contribution, we pool all that money into one fund, right? And then we professionally manage that, go out and look at opportunities and make investments on your behalf. But part of the mobile experience is that we, uh, you you know, we, we showcase that process and involve people to the, to, to an extent that we can in terms of gathering opinions, understanding what's going on. Um, you know, like we're even, you know, kind of, here's an example of how we like to say it. Right. So it's like, uh, it's as if, all us retail investors, all us non-accredited, it's, it's as if you know, we had only ever been allowed to watch the NBA at home on TV. That's what we could do. Oh, okay. It's a good experience. Okay. You get to kind of watch it. Right? But what we're saying is we want to take you to the stadium, give you courtside seats and <laughs> tell you you're a part owner in the team that's playing, right? I mean, it totally changes the feel of what you're doing, right? And if you're really, really good, we'll let you be that kid that sits under the hoop and gets to go wipe sweat off the court during timeouts. Right. You're not (laughs) shooting the ball and you're not coaching the team, but you're right there. And that's the experience we want people to feel. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, I still think that's better than any alternatives that we have right now. You know, that's incredible. That's amazing. So how did this all like, I mean, you kind of started the story of, of how it started with you personally going down this the, the you know the rabbit hole for lack of a better term and kind of like researching all this stuff and and really asking questions. But how did it how did it start and how did it really get off the ground?
1: <clears throat> well, I mean the number one barrier was trying to figure out what fund structure we could use for this. And we knew that, mm-hmm. you know, investors wouldn't give us any money until we figured that out. And so it was a long haul. I mean um this is one of those areas oh. where it's good to know the right people. Um and not from yeah. like a you know like a mobster kind of know the right people, but just like you know there, there are folks that understand more deeply how these big government systems work and who the right people are inside that you know can understand what you're working on. Um, and so we finally got around. I mean, it took about a year and a half to get introduced to someone who had previously been at the SEC for about five years, and he had just come out and made partner oh, wow. at a, a law firm called Brian Cave. Um, and we got connected with him and you know, explained it to him. And he's like, Oh, I know exactly who to talk to. And they have this special process (laughs) that's not published anywhere. And, you know, like we can get you in here and get it all organized (laughs) and have you talk to all the right people and I'll make some phone calls. And I mean, from the time we had that conversation, it took almost (laughs) 10 months from the time we met him until we actually had those conversations took forever. But, um, and and to know, not, not his phone, right. This is just the government you're working with. And so
0: by the time we got all the right people,
1: So we got all the right people in the room, explained what we wanted to do. We had our own thesis, and they came in prepared with their own ideas, which was great. And so we had a lot of back Mm -hmm. and forth. We examined a few things, and we actually ended up going with one of their suggestions. Um, We found some things that they weren't even aware of as a group. The SEC in its entirety knew about it, but they they weren't aware. Um, And so we had some back and forth and identified that, and that was back in October, November And they effectively gave us what we refer to as a green light, which is, yes, you can use this fund structure for these purposes. So all you need to do, all you need to do is get (laughs) registered for this fund, which is a very expensive, long and arduous process in and of itself. But we knew exactly what we had to do. And at that point, we had what we needed. It was the holidays. So we waited until about February to start fundraising um, for not for the fund itself, but for Sweater, the fintech company. Uh, just like any other startup that you would raise money for. And so we just closed that Mm -hmm. up. We, we oversubscribed our, our round. Um, And now, so we raised 2.3 million, which has been a great spot to start. Uh, We've got a team of about 12 now working on stuff. we have you know, we're, we're building out the product we've submitted to the sec. We're building out a VC partner network. We've got six VCs on board to co-invest with. We're building out a scouting network right now for our, you know our retail investors to be able to participate and and find opportunities to invest and bring wow. them to us, um, and we just kicked off the wait list last week. You know, I mean, so lots of stuff is rolling, and yeah, it, it's it's all very positive.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm on the wait list. <laughs> I'm kind right. of far down, right. though, but I'm there, man. <laughs> it's sweet. That's really cool. So, and I I read like because I follow you on LinkedIn. You know, I've read a few of your posts that talk about how, you know, your kind of journey in entrepreneurship started like almost immediately. You were talking about on a post how, you know, you had your degrees and then, you know, you got your MBA and all these things, and then you just kind of started your own business. Um, So for people who, I mean, let me ask you a big question. I commented on, on your post about the whole MBA thing. And I told you like my experience, but, but in your experience, um, I mean, what, what is the future of like MBAs and education? Like, what does that look like? Like, do you, is it, I mean, I talk to everybody who has it now and they're like, it's nice to have, but like, I don't, I don't have one. Cause I was just like, you know, I had, I had some revelation, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So but for you, like what, what's the, what's kind of the future of this whole education and entrepreneurship relationship?
1: Well, I mean, in general, I think, you know there could be a couple of different ways to discuss that i mean i don't think that it's a trade off between education and entrepreneurship specifically i think that yeah, I that is one option but the difference between education and having the credibility you need to advance in a career that's i think the strongest correlation right so mm-hmm. today i mean yeah. it has been you know until you know we could say today maybe 5 years ago that if you didn't have a bachelor's degree you couldn't even apply for most high paying jobs. Right. And then eventually you'd hit, you you would most likely not, not guaranteed, but you would most likely hit a glass ceiling at some point where you then had to have an advanced degree in order to be qualified for managements and, you know, special projects and these other ultra high paying opportunities. Um, but that's shifting, you know, I, more and more, especially with so much information, um, that's available online for free that, you know, you can (laughs) a self-teach and become an expert in something without ever going to school. And schools are behind the times. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I've had lots of discussions with universities that I've um, attended. I'll just leave names <laughs> off the table for now uh, about being more advanced, especially around things like digital marketing You know, and saying like, why don't you have a yeah. digital marketing yeah. emphasis? Not marketing, digital marketing, digital, like how to actually marketing. run Facebook ads, how to be the best in the world at doing this, like be able to sit down, <clears throat> And run a ten or twenty thousand dollar a month budget how do you scale that to a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar a month budget how does this stuff work you know how have things evolved from whether you know the history and understanding it so we have context I mean nobody teaches that stuff and it's like how on yeah. earth are universities not teaching this this is what's running the world now <laughs> I mean I, I haven't looked at the stats for a while but if I'm not mistaken digital advertising has uh, outstripped traditional TV and digital out of home advertising for the last couple of years. So most marketing is done on the internet and no one's teaching classes. Are you kidding? It's ridiculous. Um, and so I, yeah. I believe higher education has a reckoning coming, um, you know, and it's, there's, I mean, already the yeah. big tech companies are already saying you don't have to have a bachelor's degree to apply now. Um, and I think that's complicated, mm-hmm. right? It's, I wouldn't say it's misleading because uh, it's I think that that opportunity to not have a degree and still qualify to work at Google are you know there's a big gap there, right? You can't just walk out of high school yeah. and go apply at Google, right? But if you didn't right. get a bachelor's and you've worked for five or seven years and you've become an expert, you can apply and work at Google with no degree. and especially right, engineers, right. right? Um and it's I think that we're going to be shifting more from a credential based system to a skills based system. And it's going to take a long time to transition, but, um, I I think it's going to happen, you know, and uh, I don't know, like the, everything's just so overpriced and, you know, you're coming out of school laden with debt and all this stuff. I mean, I don't know, it's complicated and there's no guarantee of which direction it will go, but
0: yeah, it's true for me. That was the big thing was like, education isn't necessarily like traditional formal education necessarily isn't a bad thing. But it's the t- it's the price t- it's the ticket it's the cost right that that kind of yeah. is throwing us all for a loop. It's like, um, you know, it's just like what what I I mentioned, you know, on, on your on your post. But I mentioned it a few times. It was like this guy told me he looked me right in the in the face and he was like, "If you had thirty grand, which was the cost of my MBA, if you had thirty grand to spend on yourself, would you go to college?" And I was like, "Heck no, I wouldn't go to college with it." <laughs> you know, I would, exactly. and, and I mean exactly. I, that that answer might be different for everybody. Like that was a personal experience for me. Right. Cause some people mm-hmm. might take that and go, and that's fine. But for me, it was like, no, I, I'd want to like learn other skills and gain experience that I know that would, that would take us take me further because yeah, like you don't have to have a bachelor's degree, but you have to have like, what did Elon Musk say? Like exceptional, like qualifications, like, or exceptional mm-hmm. proof. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. Is, which is fair, you know, that, and, and so, and then that brings up, but then that brings up this whole idea of, of like, you know, job hunting, but we don't have to go there, but that's interesting, right? Like that's yeah. super interesting um, because I've always just been, you know, kind of, you, you look at it, right. You go, you go, who is, who's where I want to be and what do they have and how did they get there? And then I'm going to try to, to do that. Right. And the, and it's just kind of all over the place.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, you know, uh, there's always, just mm-hmm. like all these things, there's always going to be a place for MBAs. There's always going to be a place for PhDs and undergraduate degrees. There's always going to be mm-hmm. companies that are going to require that stuff. I don't think that it will ever go away. Um, yeah. But I do think that there are going to be alternative paths that are that become very viable options and better, mm-hmm. more formalized way of gaining skills instead of degrees. Um and I, I'd say I've yet to see a formalized way to get that done efficiently and, and at any kind of scale. But I think it'll happen. You know, it's uh, it's ripe for disruption, as many say. It's ripe for
0: disruption. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I I'm excited. I've talked to a few people in kind of like that disruption education space. And it's pretty exciting to watch that that whole th- For sure. So what is your like? Um I I like to talk about books. i mean, I'm sure like you see see some in my office here, but I'm like, I love books. Um what what book that you recommend to everybody, especially if they want to start a business or maybe they're getting out on their own and stuff like that?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Um Shucks, what's it called? Uh, it's a negotiation book. I got it on my shelf. Where is it? Ha, ah, never split the difference. i've read that book like five times and oh as everybody says i mean yeah i mean it's it's the best book i've seen for business and life like to actually get ahead and you know not not in like a selfish or devious way but like in a natural way to get what you need and want without being rejected for unnecessary stupid reasons i mean and it's like it it covers like basic everyday (laughs) stuff but it's bigger stuff yeah. like salary negotiations and, you know, closing big sales oh, like, yeah. and doing like real stuff. So I appreciate that book. I think that it's extremely rich in its contents and it's real world. That's a thing. Like so many books that are, are published out there are written by no, no offense to any of them. Right. But are, they're smart books that explain studies that mm. have been done, you know, like, um, like Jonah Berger does a lot of this, right? Um, yeah. And looking at things like Blink and, yeah. you know, and, and Malcolm Gladwell, like smart books, incredibly smart, right? And yeah. they're, they're great at it because they take other people's studies and then they digest it and give their own view of, of how all that stuff actually works in the world. Um, but the yeah. thing about Never Split the Difference is it's from you know 30 years of in the field negotiations being taught by the person that did it. And that's very different than a study. <laughs> And so that's one of the reasons yeah. I love it is it's just, it's so applicable and so real.
0: Yeah, yeah, real world advice. I love that book. And I actually went and, um, you know, masterclass, Chris Voss had a masterclass on uh, on on their website and he's got the black swan. Dude, I, I love that guy. Plus, interesting note about Chris Voss. It's so funny, I brought this up. He's got, a, it's a really popular book because I asked this question two interviews ago and they said the same. Thing. Um, but yeah, I grew up, right where Chris Voss grew up so he grew up in uh, in southeast iowa and so i remember oh, like cool. voss petroleum and oh, stations really? everywhere and yeah it was actually pretty, it was pretty cool you know yeah that's awesome um, i mean another yeah, one
1: like specifically for startups um is okay. the hard thing about hard things
0: um, oh yeah
1: by uh horowitz uh what's his first name <clears throat> from andrew yeah. horowitz uh a16z yeah. and I mean, that guy, he went through the ringer as a founder, like (laughs) in a crazy way. I mean, he founded his company like right before the dot-com bust and he was one. So like, I think I'll probably get the years wrong, but it was like in 2000, there were like 350 IPOs of tech companies or something like that, or maybe just overall. And in 2001, there were like 23 and his company was one of those 23 companies that went public. And so, Uh, and after that, of course, everything was just collapsing. Their market was, in in many ways, to the startup world. So as all these companies are going out of business, they were just losing revenue left and right. They were a public company now. And he had to reinvent that company (laughs) from the top down and somehow survived and still sold it for a couple of billion, you know, six years (laughs) later. I mean, like, Absolutely crazy. But the thing that I love about it, besides it being real, and again, not theoretical, right? Being told by the person right. that went through it, is that it's, so fo- it's not focused on the strategy, the traditional notion of strategy and business. Probably, I would say the vast majority of it, probably 60, 70% of that book is about people and how you manage and mm-hmm. inspire people inside a startup environment that is often volatile. And difficult to manage when you're the founder having to make hard choices and how you facilitate that. Cause I mean, he had points where he had to fire, you know, 70% of his staff. So the thing you don't think about is like, well, that, that's mm-hmm. a crappy experience having to fire 70% of your staff. But the bigger problem is what do you do with the 30% that stay and how do you convince them to stay and actually yeah. be productive and help <laughs> yeah. rebuild the company? Because they're scared to death. I mean, imagine like seven of your friends just like walked out the door, like, and you're left. You're like, oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. You know, like I'm next. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what do you do in that scenario to maintain morale and and actually be able to inspire people to to do what's necessary? I mean, it's it's real. And um, so, I really appreciate that book. Matter of fact, I'm going to put that back in in Audible and listen to it again. It's been a couple of years.
0: <laughs> you should. I mean, I remember I read that book for the first time two years ago, but hadn't hadn't thought about it until you just brought it up. So I'm gonna have to read that again too, man. I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, one more too that I want to like specifically for founders. um, There's a couple of them that kind of cover the same stuff. One is called the founder's dilemma. And I think the other one is called founder pie, maybe something along those lines. And it's the whole notion of how you determine equity splits between founders. And this area of all areas is probably one of the most contentious things that destroys teams um, is Mm
0: -hmm.
1: negotiating equity. Um, and it's like negotiating
0: uh, equity when you're, when you're selling, like when you're raising or like when you're starting the company.
1: No, when you're starting. So, Um, you know, you and two buddies are going to start a company and you say, well, there's three of us, let's split it three ways. And then you go and start the company. And then, you know, (laughs) one of them, one of you quits your job and you're full time on it. The other two keep their jobs, they're working nights and weekends. You know, one of them is only putting in half as much time as you thought, and they're always taking vacations. You know, you're putting in both time and you put in $50,000, and they put in five, you know, and you get six months down the road and you look around and you're like, I'm doing way more than a third of the work and a third of the risk here, you know, (laughs) and that creates conflict, right? So the way that you start that conversation and the expectations you set between founders moving forward is just incredibly important. Um, And it actually is a really, Like for me personally, it changed the trajectory of some stuff I was working on with Sweater. And so it's absolutely critical, I'd say, to understanding how to do that. And like one of the things that's really interesting, you know, is being able to examine like what timeframes different people are going to be adding value to the business. So out of the gates, Mm. it might be the engineer, the product person that's actually building the thing so that you can go and sell it. But after that point, it might be, the salesperson, right, that's gonna go out and actually generate revenue. Um, but they're not right. happening at the same time, you know. And so, uh, you know, is one person taking more risk than the other? And um and one of the most eye-opening concepts for me was once you negotiate this, it's not set in stone, right? Like you can yeah. change equity structures and you can have that conversation, you know? And so um wow. I think it's something a lot of founders don't understand. They just they get you know, um, they get upset about the position that they're in, the risk they're taking, and they never consider that you can renegotiate um, and, and have a, a better position. So it's just incredibly enlightening. And, and one of the reasons that it's also enlightening is because the, the guy that put it together, I think he studied like 700 funded companies. And, you know, between those 700, there was like 1500 founders that they examined how they started with their equity. And what happened to their equity distribution and the founders over the first few years of the business and examined all the dynamics Um, of what went wrong and all that kind of stuff. And so it's very informative, uh, highly recommended if you, especially if you think that you're going to start a high growth business, but if anything else, basic rule, never just split it 50-50 or 30-30-30 or whatever, right? Just You have to have the tough conversation on day one and say, what is everyone bringing to the table? And, and, you know, it's like one of the things it's like, if you got the idea, if you're the idea guy that started it all, you get a 5% bonus off the top. Right. And then from there, you create more like an equation to try to determine who is adding what value along the way, including, you know, financial time, uh, reputation risk, you know, um, offsetting salaries, like salaries you're giving up, like all that kind of stuff. And you come up with a formula that everybody agrees on, come out the other side, and then you have an answer. Right. And, all you can do is argue with the formula instead of arguing your emotions it's it's a lot
0: right 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 yeah that makes who that's a lot to unpack that, and that's a but that's <laughs> important for people to know though like is if you're in a partnership i mean i learned after starting two businesses with partners was the one that you mentioned like never split it 50-50 if you go into a partner with somebody um, and I always just assumed that never split at 50, 50. I mean, I'm sure this is part of it, but um, I, because of like, if you have two partners, it's just like voting rights too. like, you know, somebody has to have the final say, like, we can't be stuck in like a stalemate. Like somebody has to pull rank. Like if, if there ever comes a time right. where somebody will rank and like, make the decision, like, like we have to do that. Right.
1: Mm. Yeah, totally, man. We can talk about books all day.
0: <laughs> dude, I, well, I love it though. Cause I mean, do you feel like, I mean, for entrepreneurs, I, gosh, dude, I mean, I've talked to a ton, not, not necessarily on the podcast, but I've talked to a lot who, who just don't, don't see the value of like, I don't know, maybe books specifically, you know, I mean, you're, you're always learning and you have education, but nothing like, a good book in my mind. So, I appreciate that. I appreciate your your input on that. Well, that's Well, I and I appreciate your time being here. Like I don't want to take all day from you, and you know, especially on the weekend. But um how can people, I mean, I think I left the 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 uh website and the link here, but for you like cool. how do they follow you and get a hold of you if they want to get involved or what should they do?
1: Uh, Well, for sweater, you can just go to sweaterventures.com and sign up on the waitlist. You know, and we, we've having some fun with that. Right. So we've got a ranking system Mm -hmm. and, you know, when you share with your friends and they sign up through your link, you go up in the rankings, you know, it's pretty fun. Yeah, Um, And then we keep you updated.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's good so far. So we'd love to have people sign up and, and follow our journey there. Um, And then for me personally, I don't like, they don't really have like handles (laughs) and stuff on LinkedIn. So if you just Google Jesse Randall sweater, LinkedIn, I, you know, that I'll I'll pop up. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in in Boulder, Colorado. So if you want to look me up and and follow, I'm fairly (laughs) prolific on LinkedIn. I I do like posting a lot of good content and, um, you know, trying to keep things real. I'm not one to self-promote too much, but, you know, life is, is complicated and we all have a life outside of work. And that's kind of some of the angle that I like to take is that, um yeah. you know we're all human, and we all need to talk about these other things that are important.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, like I said, I love it, so I'll keep doing it. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Like I said, and uh, and I hope you guys crush it. I can't wait till sweater uh, launches, brother.
1: All right, yeah. Thank you. Well, we're excited too. Get it in your hands.